You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, episode 62. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progress Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. So on this episode, we're going to continue our uh, series, our PCOS series. Today, we're going to talk about lab testing and diagnosis. So uh, Dr. Davidson, why don't we uh, kind of just dive right in and get started? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So last time we talked about what PCOS is and described it. This one, we're going to talk about testing and diagnosis. And of course, when you're thinking about polycystic ovarian syndrome, you're thinking about cysts on the ovaries. So um, one of the first tests or testing that a, a doc would do would be an transvaginal ultrasound to actually look at your ovaries to see if you've got cysts. Yeah, right. So maybe, uh, you know, someone's experiencing some pain. Maybe they're, you know, literally they're having, uh, you know, they could have a ruptured cyst. We've had lots of stories over the years where, you know, patients are having a lot of discomfort. They go to the gynecologist and they do an ultrasound and sure enough, they, they find cysts or like we talked about in the last episode, they go in to do the ultrasound and there is no cysts, um, which can easily happen as well too. Yeah. So one definitive diagnosis when you're looking for PCOS is, if you go and do a transvaginal ultrasound and you see a string of pearls, a bunch of cysts, it looks literally like a string of pearls on the ovaries, then you can pretty much say 100% that person has PCOS. Now, like we said on the other um, podcast, women with PCOS don't normally have cysts. It's actually not as common as you think. In fact, actually having a follicular cyst or a simple cyst is no- quite normal for us females. But in PCOS with women, you might not even see those cysts, but definitely, you know, first thing off is you want to get a transvaginal ultrasound. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, obviously a very conventional approach to do to do the ultrasound. That's usually the first step in this process. Uh, and then there might be some follow-up blood work that comes in on the backside. We kind of do it in the opposite direction. We always do the blood work first. Uh, and depending on that blood work, we may or may not do the ultrasound. Uh, we may not have to do the ultrasound. They might have had that in the past. Um, but we are, you know, we're always kind of on the lookout, so to speak, for a PCOS diagnosis anyways. That's why we wanted to do this podcast on the diagnosis is because a lot of times women aren't getting what we think would be the proper testing to check for PCOS. Because one of my most favorite tests to check for PCOS is to do a blood test on the follicle-stimulating hormone, which is abbreviated FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, along with the luteinizing hormone, abbreviated LH. You do what's called a ratio, so an FSH to an LH ratio, and women with PCOS will have that LH to the luteinizing hormone, usually double or more to that FSH, which definitely points you in the direction of of PCOS. So like, for example, you run an LH and a woman's um, LH is 14 and her FSH is seven. That's a two to one ratio. So that definitely makes you say, hey, we need to go look at the PCOS and do some more testing to, and also get their subjective information as well. 
Yeah, right. And I think FSH and LH levels are done routinely uh, by gynecologists or primary care doctors, but I don't think they necessarily know a lot of times what those numbers even really mean. Exactly. Or they might only do an FSH and not the LH. And the FSH is a great test. It tells you, like if I were in perimenopause or going into menopause, it's a great way to tell you where you're at in terms of that transition. But for PCOS, you've got to have that LH in there and then do, you know, the math is easy. And, and sometimes it might be that the LH might be 20 and the FSH is five. So anything two to one or more for that LH to FSH ratio is really what you're looking at with that. And one of the main reasons behind that is because with PCOS, like we talked about, is one hallmark is those high levels of androgens. Right. Yeah. So the first androgen that is uh, that you would expect almost in most PCOS cases, but sometimes it is elevated, sometimes it's normal, is DHEA, or we like to test for DHEA sulfate. DHA sulfate is probably a little bit more accurate or specific when you're looking at levels of DHEA for a female. Doing a total DHEA doesn't give you a whole lot because pretty much everybody, you know, it's all, everybody kind of falls into the same um, level. Now, I got to say on the flip side, these reference ranges, which we're going to go through with you, are huge and vast and, and it's hard to differentiate. So for example, DHA sulfate has a very big reference range. Um, so of course, DHEA is comes from our adrenal glands. It's highest when we're young, you know, like 20, 25, and then it comes down with, with time. So when you're 90, your DHEA is going to be considerably lower than you were when you were 25. But for example, let's say a female is 35 years old and we want to check her DHEA sulfate because we're considering that her DHEA might be a little elevated pointing to PCOS. The reference range for a DHEA sulfate for a 35-year-old female is 23 to 266 micrograms per deciliter. 23 to 266 is a huge reference range. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we do a DHEA sulfate pretty much on every menstruating woman and even non-menstruating women because, uh, as we said on the last one, sometimes you don't know whether that number is going to be high or low. If that number is 20, let's say in the low 20s or the low 30s or anything even below 100, but then you go all the way up to uh, you know to the high 200s, uh, that woman is going to feel in some ways uh, completely different on one end of that spectrum to the other. So for just um, you know for sake of looking at the lab reference values, you can you can pretty much say let's say a 35 year old female considering PCOS. If that DHA sulfate is 200 or more, then you definitely want to delve into looking more into that PCOS um, diagnosis. Because typically, if you know, you might see it at 150, 177, over 200, you start saying, you know what, if you're not taking DHA as a supplement and your DHA is over 200, even if you're, you know, in your, you know, 30 to 45, you're checking them, you know, even 30 to 45, if it's over 200, then you, that's, that's going to strike a little, you know, a little flag saying, hey, you know what, that's looking like it's kind of a little bit on that high end. Then, of course, you'd want to jump into the testosterone. Yeah, right. And there might be, especially if some of those physical characteristics start to show up, there's some acne, there's some hair growth in unwanted places, and then you look at a number like the DHEA sulfate that's high normal, uh, certainly that is going to be a red flag. Uh, testosterone, reference range for testosterone for a woman, it doesn't really change much, but um, 2 to 45, uh, 8 to 48, depending on which uh, lab you're, you're using, Again, a huge range, but when that number, where would you say when you would start to suspect when the number is in the, you know, maybe the mid-30s? 
Exactly. So like you were saying, Quest has a reference range of 2 to 45 nanograms per deciliter. That's huge. 2 to 45, and LabCorp has it at 8 to 48, and I think some other labs might have it up to 55, depending on the age. But whenever you see that testosterone over 35, that's going to spark a little interest in you and in saying, hey, you know what, this has a little higher to, you know, high normal values of testosterone, which is an androgen, like the DHEA, that that's going to make you want to look and into that PCOS diagnosis. So one thing I, I, I didn't mention earlier is one beautiful, beautiful thing about DHEA, because it's really a great hormone, is DHEA can convert to testosterone for us ladies. So it's a way for us to be able to get our testosterone levels. So if you do see that higher normal or high level of DHEA, you can pretty much assume that it's converting into testosterone. Then you check the testosterone. And if it's over 35, you know, that you definitely want to look at that PCOS diagnosis. Now there are plenty of women with actual, you know, you can see it right off the bat that PCOS and their DHEA is well over 200 and their testosterone is like 90, you know, it's yeah. well, you know, double the reference range. But, but those of you that might get missed with the PCOS is definitely look at that high to normal testosterone as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When, uh, so let, you know, hypothetically you go in, you get an ultrasound, there's no cysts. You get a DHA that's high normal. You get a testosterone's high normal, but they're all, you have a negative ultrasound, high normal, high normal. Uh, well at that point, what can you diagnose? You can't diagnose anything at that point because everything's in the reference range. Uh, that's why, uh, when something is uh, approaching there, especially if there's clinical presentation, then you can assume that that is an actual diagnosis. Exactly. You want to put that clinical presentation together along with what their health goals are or how they're feeling. You know, hey, I'm gaining weight and my hair is falling out or I'm c considering, you know, possibly pregnancy, but I don't, I haven't been able to get pregnant. Why? It could be part of this kind of this diagnosis of PCOS. Now, later in the series of PCOS, we're going to go into the different types that we see and why some people get missed and why some people don't get missed. Right. Uh, so of course we're talking uh, female hormone issues. So of course estrogen has to be part of that uh, conversation. Uh, some doctors don't even test estrogen levels that they might do a total estrogen. We prefer almost invariably to do an estradiol level. And again, if you look at the typical reference ranges, they are huge. You know, they're, they're looking at, you know, so they call it the follicular phase, which would be day one to day 11, um, 19 to 144 picograms per milliliter. And then mid-cycle, which would be your typical ovulation, would be 64 to 357. That is a huge reference range, not to mention the luteal phase, which is supposed to be post-ovulation, is vast as well. But what we do find in PCOS is that the estrogen levels don't necessarily drop. They have the higher levels of the androgens, but they still have levels of estrogen as well. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, and uh, one one uh, one thing that you would see often in a PCOS patient, if they're not having a regular period, then you know something is not really quite right with their estrogen. If they're having a regular period, then you can make some assumptions about estrogen levels if their cycle is if they're cycling every single month. Again, that's the part of the complication of PCOS. The those androgens start to get to be a little bit too high, and now the the normal f uh, female rhythm starts to get thrown off. Exactly, which leads you to the other most important, you know, female reproductive hormone, which is progesterone. Now, classically in PCOS and all pretty much all the types, which we'll go over in the next couple of podcasts or the next podcasts, is progesterone is low. That's pretty much another hallmark that usually gets missed. Like everyone thinks PCOS, high androgens, high testosterone, but really another hallmark is the low progesterone. 
Yeah, right. And that could create a having a low progesterone. I mean, we use progesterone all the time with patients as a way to, you know, help them feel better, but also to kind of change a little bit of the hormonal signaling that's happening, you know, as well. Uh, so why don't we run through uh, kind of where, you know, where their progesterone levels would be. Now, if um, there are plenty of women that have PCOS that have a period every single month, you know, and if they do, that's great. It's really easy to test their progesterone levels. You want to check it between day 16 and day 35, 28 to 35, depending on how long their cycles are. Because sometimes in PCOS, women can have a little bit longer cycles. But, you know, anywhere from day 16 to their next period is a great time to check for progesterone. But again, on that flip side, there's a lot of women with PCOS that don't have regular periods. They might miss six months. They might miss three months. They might miss every other month. And then there are also women with PCOS that have had their uterus taking out. They have had an ablation because they had such heavy periods. So they had a uterine ablation to diminish that. That makes it a little bit more tricky in determining what their progesterone levels are. Yeah, because you, you don't have the landmark of the period. So how do you decide what day they're on? Uh, so usually, usually we recommend in the beginning when you're when you don't have a day to start with, right? You don't have a way to you know keep track of it month by month. Then you just pick a random day, go anytime. It doesn't matter. Uh, and then we can test it shortly thereafter and then see the difference between those numbers and maybe, maybe, maybe get some kind of a conclusion from that. Or maybe the number is pretty much the same thing, which would be common in a, a patient with PCOS anyways. So for example, let's say, hey, I'm missing periods or I had an ablation. So I don't know when my period would be coming is I'd say, go get your blood work done right now. And if their progesterone shows up at less than one or less than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter, you think, okay, that level is low. Then we wait about two weeks, maybe three, and we retest it because then you'll see, hey, look, that progesterone rose up because that's what's supposed to happen in, tip in a typical cycle. And a woman that has had a hysterectomy or they don't have, they've had an ablation, they're still going to be cycling. You just can't follow it in, in terms of the period. So, you know, we do that first one of that progesterone, then maybe two, three weeks later, we check the progesterone level again. If it's still less than one or less than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter, then you're, then you can definitively say, Hey, you've got low levels of progesterone. Yeah. Right. And for a woman that is cycling or does have a uterus, you can't really give them estrogen, right? They're not really a candidate, but for women of all the different age ranges, giving them progesterone can be very, very beneficial in how they feel, not to mention the, you know, the, the clinical benefit of, you know, of adding a hormone in like that. Cause like I said, especially in a case like this, they have usually more progesterone deficiency than estrogen dominant, so to speak. Exactly. Like you said, adding in some progesterone, there's also lots of supplements and herbs that can help, you know, modify and balance that and work with your progesterone as well. So that's looking at kind of what, when people think of PCOS, they're thinking the hormones, the progesterone, the androgens, but there are other hormones that are just as affected in PCOS than these female hormones or the testosterone or the DHEA in particular, which Dr. Mackey loves to talk about, which we all do is the insulin levels. In PCOS, you'll see the higher levels of insulin. Now, uh, we get a little frustrated sometimes, or at least I get a little frustrated because a lot of doctors don't even test insulin levels or a fasting insulin. We test them just like the uh, DHEA and testosterone specifically for this reason. We want to see a fasting insulin because if that number is greater than 10 uh, on a fasting insulin, we can make some assumptions, especially if we uh, you know, if we couple that with these other numbers, now it paints a very, very specific 
specific story, even though that story might not be completely a classic representation, uh, things are starting to lean in a particular direction. Uh, so ideally, a, a fasting insulin should be less than five, you know, less than seven would be appropriate. Once it gets into those double digits and the higher it is, uh, now you can feel pretty confident that, you know, that is really kind of the underlying mechanism that is driving all those female hormone issues and the high androgens. And we kind of call it the triad. So what you'll see is you'll see higher levels of insulin and granted the insulin reference range is huge. It's like two to 19 or two to 20 I use per milliliter in reference in labs. Ignore that. Like Dr. Mackey said, ideally anything under five, five to seven, anything over nine to 10, then you know they have higher levels of insulin. But the triad we talk about is higher levels of insulin, high triglycerides, which is part of a cholesterol panel, and then possibly high glucose. Yeah, right. So a, a, a normal glucose level, again, fasting glucose levels can be a little bit misleading. And just because that number is under 100 um, doesn't make it ideal. Uh, I think a, a good, like a really ideal range for a human is probably right around 85, uh, 83 to 87, something like that. Once you start to get into the mid 90s and above, uh, now you can assume that there's some other issues going on there. Uh, and I would say, the 85 range is common, is, is normal, not very common. A, an American with a blood sugar of 95 and above, I think is very common, but not normal. Uh, and that is something that, uh, that I think happens an awful lot. We just take these numbers in the high 90s as being you know, in the normal reference range, but it, I think it's telling a story that it's leading to a, you know, a problem where that problem already exists. Exactly, so if you have you know high normal glucose, higher levels of insulin, especially over nine or 10. And then the triglycerides, like I said, which is on a cholesterol panel, ideally you want your triglycerides 150 or below. If you see those triglycerides right around 150 or higher, then you're looking at that triad, which leads you to, a, which the consequence is insulin resistance and diabetes type two. That's, you know, that's the risk factor there. There's, there's another um, kind of interesting equation that I want to let Dr. Mackey kind of explain, which gives you an idea what your actual insulin resistance status is. Yeah, it's basically just a, you know, an insulin resistant calculation. And this, you know, again, as we talked about last time, this is kind of like the underpinning or the underlying reason as to where the PCOS comes from. And it's called the HOMA IR score, H-O-M-A. And it's literally just a calculation. Uh, so you take insulin, multiply it by glucose, and then you divide that by 405. Okay, so a typical insulin that we would see would be, let's say, somewhere between 7 to 12. You know, the higher the number, the worse it is. A fasting glucose would be somewhere in the, let's say, the 90s somewhere. You multiply the insulin times the glucose, you divide that by 405, and that gives you a score, right? That gives you a number, usually in the lower digits. One or less is optimal, right? That means that there, that person is insulin sensitive, meaning their body is responding to insulin very well. Once that number gets to be like 1.9 and above, maybe 2.0 and above, they have kind of mild early stage or kind of mild to moderate uh, insulin resistance. Once that number is above three, then you can determine that they probably, they have significant level of insulin resistance. And more than likely, like you, you just said, Dr. Davidson, that they're 
their triglycerides are going to be elevated. They're going to have probably, you know, maybe cysts on their ovaries. Their testosterone DHA is going to at least be high normal. You know, it's going to, you know, it's really going to paint that picture and that HOMO IR score is something that you can track over time as well. Because if they are improving and they're becoming more insulin sensitive, now that HOMO IR, a HOMO IR score is going to actually start coming down. Yeah, so you'd be able to see that as you're going along with treatment or, you know, or with your health goals. So I'll, I know that's a little complicated. I'll definitely put the HOMA-IR into the show notes so that you can read it and see the calculation and see the equation. And I'll put an example on there too, so that perhaps if you have your levels or you're going to have your levels tested, you can have this equation to be able to check your IR score. So, and then of course, the, the next one, which I'm sure a lot of people already know about is your hemoglobin A1C. Yeah, and that one has gotten uh, to be very popular over the last uh, several years. For if you're a non-diabetic, that number can be a little bit, you know, confusing, but it should be. I remember when we, you and I first started in practice a long time ago, anything under six was considered to be normal. And now the reference range is already down some labs. It goes down to like 5.6. Um, so they've really kind of tightened up that reference range. They are using that number to be kind of a diagnostic number. So if that number is elevated, now they'll, your doctor might tell you that you're pre-diabetic. Uh, pre-diabetic and insulin resistant in some ways is kind of the same thing. At least that's a, the way we view it. Um, but I think it's a little bit unfair. If your number is 5. Point, you know, 5.6, 5.7, 5.8, and your doctor says you're pre-diabetic, you can't base it solely on that one test. You've got to have a little bit more information of the things we're talking about. A higher normal glucose, a, a high fasting insulin, elevated triglycerides um, to really see if someone is either insulin resistant and or pre-diabetic, which in our mind is kind of the same thing. I absolutely agree, but I still love the hemoglobin A1C test. So anything over 5.7%, you're going to, you know, you're going to have to put this picture together, you know, put all the data together to say, Hey, this is really pointing in that definitely that insulin resistance, which, you know, is part of that PCOS picture. And then of course, cortisol, everybody loves talking about cortisol. Cortisol is a hugely important, you know, hormone in our body, but at the same time, too much of a good thing isn't a good thing. Yeah, right. And cortisol, you know, uh, testing cortisol for a normal, relatively healthy person, testing it through blood is really not the best way to do it. Um, that's all, honestly, that's why we do the other reason why we do DHEA sulfate a lot, because you can infer a little bit about cortisol through DHEA uh, and doing blood work. Uh, you know, the DHEA is easier to do or more accurate than doing the cortisol. Uh, so the best way, if you want to assess cortisol, the best way to do that would either be a saliva test, which usually to provide like four samples, morning, noon, afternoon, and, and night. Uh, that can be a little bit time consuming. Usually that is an out-of-pocket expense, uh, you know, because most insurance companies do not cover, uh, you know, salivary testing. The newer test that a lot of people are aware of nowadays is also doing a Dutch test, which is a, which is a dried urine test, kind of a, a newer technology. But like, like he's mentioning, Dr. Mackey's mentioning is cortisol is secreted in a diurnal curve. So it's supposed to be highest in the morning. So we're bright eyed, bushy tailed, and then it comes down at night and truly the saliva or the urine test is the best way to accurately see what your diurnal curve is of cortisol. Now, usually with PCOS, what you'll see is that cortisol is low in the morning, which is why it's tired and hard to get going. And then you'll see that cortisol come at, up at night, which is why, you know, the the food cravings come in and it's very hard to go to sleep at night. So it's a, it's a really good test, not just for PCOS, but also just in general with checking the adrenal glands. 
Yeah, I think that uh, yeah, I think that that gets missed an awful lot in conventional medicine when it comes to cortisol. The only things they really consider or look at whether you have Cushing's disease, which is an excess of cortisol, or if you have Addison's disease, which is an insufficiency of cortisol. But those two are on the extreme ends of the spectrum. Uh, I think definitely think there's a there's a subclinical Cushing's and there's a subclinical Addison's um, that no no one really ever talks about. It's almost like they just kind of blow it off. Uh, and I think that is a, a huge, especially in PCOS, this plays a, a very big role in in the development of PCOS or the, you know, the progression of PCOS over time. And then another um, test that kind of gets missed with PCOS, because everyone's focusing on the reproductive hormones and the androgens, is the thyroid function. Pretty much, I'd say 95% of all PCOS women that we deal with have some type of lowered thyroid function. Now, do they have thyroid disease? No, but there's still, you know, you do have some that are hypothyroid or Hashimoto's in conjunction, but you do see that thyroid function tends to drop with PCOS. Yeah, right. And we could maybe even make the, as we're talking about the insulin and the insulin resistance, there's a, you know, definitely a connection between insulin sensitivity and thyroid, thyroid issues. Uh, so as they become more insulin sensitive, their thyroid numbers are going to improve over time. Um, but we, you know, we see all the time, we see these, you know, high normal TSH numbers, we see low normal free T3 numbers. And if pregnancy is part of what they're trying to accomplish, you know, approaching, you know, and improving thyroid function is a necessary, is necessary in their, in their success. Exactly. And it doesn't mean you have to go out and throw them on a bunch of thyroid medication, which some people that does qualify for, but there's lots of things you can do with PCOS to help raise up that thyroid function. Cause having a lowered thyroid function almost like compounds the PCOS symptoms because a you know, lower thyroid is going to reduce your metabolism. It's going to make your hair fall out more. It's going to make you tired. And then you've got this. And then like Dr. Mackey was saying with fertility and, and you know, with, um, Gosh, with pregnancy and even even when thyroid's low, especially that low T3 uh, or even a low normal T3 can really set people up also for miscarriages. It increases the risk of miscarriage. Yeah, right. So thyroid, even though it's not a female hormone, it is one of those major metabolic hormones, um, just like insulin and cortisol, that can have a huge impact on their on their eventual success. Uh, so. Um, before we forget, if you would like more information about PCOS and uh, a few other very common female hormones, you can visit our website, ProgressionHealth.com. Right on the homepage, uh, you can enter your email to get access to our uh, short free hormone video series. Uh, we go through PCOS, we go through uh, hypothyroid, we go through menopause, perimenopause. We have some profiles there about what those things look like. Very good. You just enter your email, you get direct access to it right away. No, absolutely. And then I'm I'm on the video, so you get to see me up close and personal. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with the show notes, I'll definitely um, write these up and also put down the typical reference ranges and then what we're looking at too. Because like Dr. Mackey was saying, with the thyroid, the TSH, I'll have the reference ranges on there and the T4 and the T3. So you can look at where, you know, if you're looking at your own T3 and you see it at 2.2, you know you've got lowered T3 function. So I'll put that all together for you. Yeah. Uh, so I think we covered what we wanted to cover for this one. The next uh, couple of episodes, we're going to actually talk about the different types of PCOS. Um, there's not just one. We At least we don't think there is. It's not a matter of whether you have it or not. It's kind of where you fit in the continuum or the spectrum of PCOS. Uh, so you have anything else to add for this one, Dr. Davidson? No, this was great. Okay. All right. Until next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast. 
If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.